it's great to see everybody this morning. Um, glad you're joining us online. I think Mark's had our football this week. We'll get that up here. Can't really start a service without our football at the front. All right. So some of you have asked, what do I do if I get the football? Well, um, just like Mark did this week, you put it in a place of prominence in your house so that when you walk by it, you remind yourself of those fundamentals, those things we've been talking about, the healthy fear of the Lord, the Beatitudes, all nine of them. If you think about salt and light and how Jesus called us apart from the world, um, maybe even that anger stuff we should all be working on, practicing putting those snowballs down instead of chucking them at people. Um, or when you're dealing with temptation, being principled, premeditative, and decisive. So as I list some of those fundamentals we've been talking about, hopefully you can see the importance of keeping up with these series um, over the coming months. So I know it's not possible to always be in church every Sunday, but that's why our tech team does such a great job um, recording everything, putting it online. So if you can't make it, um, you can always check us out on Facebook on Sunday. It's live streaming there. And usually by Monday, we've got it up on our YouTube site. And you can find that very easily by just going to formile.org and keeping up with the sermons that way. So hopefully, as you've been working on your fundamentals, um, you're seeing more and more how Jesus is flipping our world upside down. And that's such an important thing for us to have in our minds because these fundamentals really draw us apart. We are truly set apart. And when we're set apart this way, we feel less and less at home in the world. And that's a good thing because we're not made for this place. God is shaping us for his kingdom. And of course, we're in the middle of this little six mini-series where Jesus is using six examples that you see up there to illustrate what he means when he says, you can't get through that narrow gate into the kingdom of God, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So the scribes and Pharisees were charged with teaching the law. And sometimes they just got a little too caught up in the letter of the law, like we've been studying. And so they focus on like the Ten Commandments, murder and adultery. But Jesus came to point them to the intention behind it, anger and lust. And then last week, we saw how the Pharisees were kind of playing with the edges a little bit with things. They were looking for workarounds to avoid commitments, such as marriage. And we know that God ordained marriage. He put it together. It was his idea. And so whenever we dissolve it, we got to take it very seriously because we could end up in some form of adultery. So now this week, he moves us on to this issue of oaths. And he talks about this practice of oath-taking to teach us about how absolutely vital truth is in his kingdom. The main teaching point is the integrity of our word. He wants us to be absolutely committed to our word so that we say what we mean, we mean what we say, and we follow through. So let's go before the Lord, let's ask his help, and then we'll unpack this together. Father, we humble ourselves in your presence and we ask for your help. Lord, would you help convict us of yet another one of your fundamental truths on this very issue of truth this morning. We pray that you would lead us into our next steps 
so that we can follow after you, being more Christ-like. And so it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 35. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All right, thanks, Don. So as Don just read for us, Jesus references Mosaic law on oaths. And we find it in multiple places throughout the Old Testament. But I just picked one of them that's actually pretty clear. It summarizes Numbers 30, verse 2. And I'll read it to you. It's up on the screen. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So this is the letter of the law that the scribes and Pharisees were charged with teaching. So let's start out by making sure we know what we mean when we say words like vow or oath. So the definition's up there. Whenever you read this in scripture, this is what it's referring to. It's a solemn promise, often invoking a divine witness regarding one's future action or behavior. And of course, the most important word in there is promise, so make sure we know what that is. It's a declaration that gives the person to whom it is made a right to expect a claim or claim the intended outcome. So now one more piece of housekeeping we gotta put in order here is that it's important that we clarify from the onset that Jesus is not forbidding the use of oaths or vows here. Remember, he's using this figurative language, these illustrations throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. Remember he says, gouge out your eye or cut off your hand, and he uses those as examples. In fact, if we took this literally, we'd be doing the same thing that the scribes and Pharisees are doing, that very thing that Jesus came to address. And we actually see oaths being taken in other places in Scripture. For example, in Acts 18, Paul makes an oath. And in Revelations 10, John records an angel making an oath. We even see God making promises, those five covenants that we talk about. The Westminster Catechism, which is one of the documents that informs our Reformed faith, actually gives guidance on vows. It says oaths are appropriate in matters of weight and moment. For example, if you're called to give legal testimony, or maybe you're commissioned as a cop, or a doctor, or maybe called into the armed forces, it's in places where life and death hang in the balance. And of course, as we discussed last week, marriage, a covenant ordained by God, meant to be upheld throughout the entirety of our lives. So we take an oath or a vow in these matters of weight and moment to verbalize our commitments. Okay, so now why did they take an oath or a vow back in the Old Testament times? Well, in Moses' day, 
there wasn't a strong civil authority. There wasn't the kind of authorities we have in our lives these days. We have the federal government, the state government, county, municipalities, townships, you name it, right? Sometimes it seems like we have too many. So there wasn't a clear legal way back then to hold people accountable for the terms of a business exchange or a contract. But if you swore on God's name, you could at least be held accountable by the religious authorities because of what we just read in Numbers 30. So oath-taking was a means of strengthening our resolve to do something and also convincing the other person that we're committed to it because an oath sworn by God was binding, at least in a religious sense. But as we saw last week with divorce, the scribes and Pharisees, they created these schemes to get around the law. So in this case, rather than swearing on God, they swore on things close to him, like we see in our passage today. If you look up here, we see swearing on heaven, the throne of God, or earth, God's footstool, or Jerusalem, the city of the great king. So swearing on these effectively creates ambiguity. It demonstrates some resolve because they're in the neighborhood of God, but they're not God. So it's not entirely clear whether we can be held accountable for this or not. So if we break this passage down, Jesus is basically calling out the full spectrum of promise schemes, from the highest of promises to the lowest of promises. And let's start at the top. So for the first one, these are promises made directly to God. If we make a promise to God, which we should be very careful to do this, we're fully committed to following through. One step down, promises made to another person, sworn by God, you could at least be held accountable by the religious authorities, like we just read. Next step down, then there's promises sworn by heaven, earth, and Jerusalem. It's close to God, so we're mostly committed to it. Then there's promises sworn by our own head, and in this case, a reputation is at least on the line, so we'll do our best to live up to it. And then there's just promises we make to another person not really sworn by anything. We can pretty much say whatever we want without really any expectation of following through. So we learn at least two things from the way that Jesus lays this out for us. First, he simply says, stop all of this ridiculous oath schemes. They just create ambiguity so you can avoid what you're intending to do anyway. And it's so egregious to violate a promise in Jesus' kingdom that he teaches, don't even get close to it. Avoid it altogether. Second, Jesus once again points us to the truth that God is the creator and sustainer of everything. Notice how he describes heaven as the throne of God, earth as the footstool, Jerusalem as the city of the great king. Jesus even references hair on our head, something we see in other places in scripture. God is even in the details of our hair. In other words, God created it all. So you can't get around swearing by God with some scheme because he's the source of everything. And this, of course, should immediately cause us to call to mind this graphic up here. We've seen this before. Hopefully you remember it. It's so important 
that we continually remind ourselves of who God is and who we are. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is sovereign, meaning absolutely in control of everything. He is all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, and he is good. He's the very definition of love, perfectly holy, and he is the author of truth. Whatever he says happens. His words matter. At creation, he just spoke it all into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And he created it such that we could see it whenever the wavelengths are between 400 and 700 nanometers. Why? Because he said so. That's how he designed light, and that's how he designed us. Whenever God speaks or promises anything, it happens. Just like those five covenants we continue to bring up, he always delivers. That's his nature, which is why if we're going to be heirs of his kingdom, we can't be flippant with truth by creating schemes to get around it. And that's why it's important to remind ourselves of who we are, too. Sometimes we think we're kind of a big deal, but in truth, we're made in his image, capable of loving, and free to choose how we will respond to it all. So how have we been responding to God's call for truth in our lives? Well, I've taken a hard look at this over the last couple of weeks preparing this sermon, and I gotta tell you, it's not good. Why? Well, it goes back to this sin spiral we've talked about. Each time we give in to temptations and we sin, we move further and further away from that straight edge of truth. Pretty soon, we lose sight of what truth even is anymore. That's what sin does to us. So I truly hope this doctrine of total depravity is becoming more and more real to us every single day because we are morally corrupt, enslaved to sin, at enmity with God, and unable to please him or even turn to him on our own. And that's why we say each week, that it is okay to not be okay, because that's the condition we all find ourselves in. But we also say that we don't wanna stay in that not okay place, which is why we love you enough to tell you the truth in the person, words, and works of Jesus. Even when that truth makes us uncomfortable, and Jesus has been hitting some really uncomfortable topics. Murder, anger, adultery, lust, divorce, and now today, he's basically calling all of us a bunch of liars. He describes how we're prone to blur the truth in two specific ways here. We quibble and we shirk. What does it mean to quibble? Deliberately using language to dodge the truth. That's that whole swearing by heaven or swearing by earth or Jerusalem just kind of mucking it up a little bit. And what does it mean to shirk? It's just simple, not living up to our word. And I think we're gonna find here this morning that we're all pretty guilty of both. So for this first one, how do we see quibbling in our lives? Well, in preparation for this sermon, I asked the staff 
to keep track of how often we quibble. And here's what we've learned. We're all prone to using nondescript language and superlatives. We do it to avoid conflict, to be funny, to make ourselves look better, to make other people feel better, to manipulate outcomes, and oftentimes to avoid accountability. Anyone else out there have the same problem? Because your four-mile staff has this problem. And the worst part is, most of the time, we don't even realize we're doing it because we become so numb to it. So to see this in your life, I want you to think back to the last time that you went to the doctor's office. And you know how you're usually in this little screening area? And for me, it's one of the most uncomfortable times because we're going to talk about things I don't really want to talk about and it kind of puts you in this compromising position. And I know that the nurse is not coming in there to pass judgment, but it usually feels like they are, doesn't it? They kind of walk in with that clipboard and they've got that real professional face and um, it usually starts out with something about your weight. And so you're sitting there, they're kind of looking at their thing and they say, have you put on any weight lately? And of course, how do you respond to that? You kind of look down and say, well, I don't think so. And then what do they do? They say, well, let's hop up on that scale and find out, right? <laughs> and then they write your numbers down almost like this, hmm, right? They're kind of checking it all out. And then they fire the, one of those, do you drink alcohol? And now you're starting to feel a little defensive, aren't you? So you say, a little, um, sometimes on special occasions, but never too much at any one point in time. And they give, give that whole, writing it down. I see your sugar numbers are a little high. You've been eating a lot of dessert lately? Now at this point, you're like, all right. Well, not any more than anybody else, right? You're total defensive mode. And then they get to the point that you're here for. Well, they say, are you in any pain? And you're like, well, all right, I, I gotta answer this one good because if I play this low or try to quibble on this one, I'm not getting my pain meds. So you're like, well, on a scale of one to 10, it's like stepping on a Lego right now. My foot's killing me, right? So you really exaggerate it. You really put it on there. And if you don't do that, because maybe you're not like me, um, I know it happens when you go to the dentist's office. Um, because when you're in that compromised position, and I'm a germaphobe, so I don't like people up in here, um, and they're all doing cleaning your teeth and everything, what's that one question that hygienists always ask you? They kind of peek out after they've been working on your teeth, and they say, do you floss? <laughs> and that always gets me. So Tyler and I talked about this one in particular today, or this week, and we both, neither one of us floss. I'm just putting that out there, so we don't floss. Of course, we don't have cavities either, so um, I don't know what the relationship is there. But Tyler, he's got this ingenious way of quibbling. He flosses once a year, the morning before he goes in for, to see the, the dentist. So he's got a good answer when they ask, do you floss? Oh yeah, I just did this morning, right? But do you see how we quibble through all of this? Now to see how much we shirk. Think about how often your friends and your colleagues back out on you or they show up late for an appointment. In fact, it happens so often these days that people don't even think it's a big deal anymore. It's, they just say stuff comes up. I have even started texting people or emailing them ahead of time because it drives me crazy when someone doesn't show up. But if you're in a coffee shop, you just look around, there's plenty of people that come in, you see them looking at their watch and they just kind of go like this and they walk out. Because this has become a thing where we just ignore it. 
right? We don't really care that people blow us off. But the truth is, when we really think about it, something better has come up for the person or else they would be there, right? So that's what economists call time inconsistency. And we all have issues with time inconsistency. What seemed to be great plans for Friday night that were made on a Monday morning are oftentimes eclipsed by the circumstances of Wednesday. Or that committee that we signed up to be on now happens to meet on a night where we got something a little bit better we could be doing. And as over time, when our friends and our colleagues bail on us for something better, our trust in them begins to erode. But if we're truly honest with ourselves, the main reason we struggle to trust others is because we know that we ourselves are not worthy to be trusted because we do the same thing. We shirk. We can't be believed by our word, so we raise the stakes and we swear an oath. I honestly didn't mean to blow you off for lunch last week. I'm so sorry, something else just came up. I swear to God, I'll be there next week. You see how the problem Jesus was dealing with 2,000 years ago still persists today? Jesus is teaching the disciples and us that we're not to quibble and we're not to shirk. So how do we address quibbling and shirking in our lives? Well, fortunately, again this week, Jesus gives us some powerful and practical instruction. He says, very simply, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Isn't that profoundly simple? So there are at least four next steps that we can take from these 16 words in here up there on green. First, speak less. Jesus just uses two words, yes and no. Every one of those questions you were asked in the doctor's office could have been answered with a yes or no. Have you put on weight? Do you drink alcohol? Are you in pain? I have a good friend who always says, God made us with two ears and one mouth, and we ought to use those in the proportion he gave them to us. Because every time we open our mouths, we put our integrity on the line. So we stand to gain a great deal by speaking less. Cammie has this thing where she starts a sentence and she knows it's not headed in a good direction. So she does this really simple thing where she just goes, mm. Now, the first couple of weeks that I worked here, she'd poke her head into my office, she'd start a sentence and she'd go, mm. and then she'd start another sentence, mm. do it again. And she kept doing this. And I really wasn't sure what to make of it at first. <laughs> but I've really grown to appreciate it. And as we see here, it's actually biblical what she was doing. So we should all think about doing this cami thing. <laughs> Second, eliminate ambiguity. The words yes and no are about as straightforward as you can get. It's really hard to fuzz them up. Stick to words that have clear meaning. We all know people who sound so smooth 
And when they finally stop talking, we have no idea what they just said. Don't become one of those long-winded, ambiguous, random noise generators. There's nothing more frustrating than that. And you see it every night on the news. I don't know if, it's, if you're like me on this, I really struggle to watch the news. I have no idea what they are talking about most days up there. And I often wonder, how can CNN and Fox report on the exact same event and have such varying descriptions of the truth? And there's only one answer to that. It's because we've all become masters at ambiguity. So if you find yourself rehearsing your lines to make it sound like you're doing the right thing, just stop and do that cami thing. Third, live up to your word. If you say yes, then do it. If you say no, then don't do it. But either way, follow through. And especially when you promise to pray for someone. That's so frustrating, right? As Christians, we're walking in the grocery store. Somebody comes up to us and they're giving us all their problems and we don't know what to do for them, so we say, I'll pray for you. But then we never do. We never take the time to do. Either something else comes up or we just forget about it. But there's nothing more terrible about than that. So be dependable, trustworthy, even when it puts you out or something more appealing comes along. Because there's always better options that will pop up in our lives. But nothing is more important than our word to live up to it. And then fourth, pursue truth. If we are not in pursuit of the simple truth, yes and no, then Jesus says right here that we are facilitating evil. The thought of being an advocate for evil is so unsettling, but that's what we do every single time that we quibble or shirk. Think about the trouble we've caused others or ourselves by not doggedly pursuing truth over the years. I had a coach that used to say, you gotta have a great memory if you don't tell the truth. Because you gotta remember what you told everybody about that story. Because those stories always come back up again. And when you're changing the truth all the time, you look like an idiot. And that's exactly the truth. And if you're someone like me who's got a terrible memory, then your best option is always to just stick to the truth no matter how hard and uncomfortable it is. Because when we pursue truth, we stop evil and all of its deceptive consequences in its tracks. So now as I thought about how do you tie all this together, how do we see these four next steps fitting together? I just kept coming back to this military salute. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it was part of my life for so many years. But salutes, they convey respect, honor, integrity, affirmation, and the intent to obey. And also, it's not optional. In the military culture, you don't get to choose when, or, when you do or don't salute. You just always salute whenever it's appropriate to do it. So as kingdom dwellers, we're all essentially soldiers in Christ's kingdom. So every time that we resist the urge to quibble or shirk by doing any of these next four steps, think of it as though you are saluting the king. And I want you to check out how these characteristics of a salute line up with these next steps. First, for the first one, 
we show someone respect, someone of higher rank, by saluting and simply saying, Orna, ma'am. Isn't that concise? Very, very few words. So we are speaking less, but it says volumes. Second, we render a salute to affirm our mission. Once we're clear about it, we say, Roger, sir, meaning message received. There's no ambiguity here. I know exactly what you want from me. For the third one up there, a salute also signifies that we intend to carry out our orders, meaning you can trust us to live up to our word. And for the fourth one, our salute confirms that we'll carry it out with honor and integrity. So if our mission happens to be getting that football in the end zone, we're not just gonna score, but we're gonna score the right way. We're gonna do it in step with truth. So each time you confront the temptation to quibble or shirk this week, just let your yes be yes and your no be no and picture yourself saluting the king. You may even need to literally whip one out every now and then just for effect. And if you need help on your salute, we have an ROTC cadet here today. Megan will be out back afterwards and she'll help you with your proper form of a salute. Because we're all soldiers in Christ's kingdom where we respect, honor, affirm, and obey Christ's call to truth. Father, you created us, you sustain us, and you know the intentions of our hearts. By the power of the Holy Spirit within us, help us to simply let our yes be yes and our no be no, living up to our word, growing in our truthfulness each day. May we never quibble or shirk as we seek to salute you with all that we do. It's for Jesus' sake we ask this. Amen. So for our response time today, let's just all take stock of how much quibbling and shirking we have going on in our lives. This is also a great time to think about the commitments, the oaths, the vows that you've taken in your life and recommitting ourselves to pursuing the truth in all that we say and all that we do. Thank you.